Christian author Joseph Bailey was known for his very distinctive short stories. And he once wrote a modern-day parable called, I Saw Ghouly Fly. Now, it's a story about a very unusual man named Herb Ghouly, and he attends a flight school. However, this is not the kind of flight school where people learn to pilot an airplane. It's the kind of flight school where human beings actually learn how to fly with their own bodies. And students take classes on human aerodynamics, liftoff and landing techniques, and more. All of the professors at this school deeply believe in human flight. All of the students deeply believe in human flight. And they study it diligently and they talk about it incessantly, but nobody ever actually flies except Herb Gooley. At night, Herb Gooley leaps out of his window and he flies over the campus. And everybody else thinks he is one weird dude. I Saw Gooley Fly is a parable. It's a parable about what it actually means to believe. And the story highlights two different kinds of belief. Do we just mentally accept something as true, which is what most of the students at that flight school did, or do we take it a step further, like Herb Gooley, and do we actually let our beliefs affect the way we live? Now, to keep these two ideas about belief straight, I call them belief one and belief two. Let's take a look at this. If we could have the first slide there, please. Belief one, an acceptance that a statement is true or that something exists. Now, that is not my definition. That is a dictionary definition of belief. I call it belief one. But when we use that word belief, this is what most of us mean. It means we've mentally accepted this is true, this is right. I agree with this principle. Next slide, please. Belief two goes another step. It's when we act on belief one. Again, that's my own terminology that helps me understand the difference between these two. And I believe that understanding the difference between belief one and belief two can affect many areas of life, but it shapes the life of faith in profound ways. For example, what does it actually mean to believe in Jesus? Can you and I be faithful Christians if we only embrace belief one? Or does faith actually require belief two? And we find some answers to these questions in the book of James, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. You can follow along with the Bible passage on the screen here for you. James writes and says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
Now, these words that we just read are written by James, who was a leader in the early church. And I think James is a fascinating guy because he actually was the brother of Jesus. Put yourself in his shoes. What would it be like to grow up in a home where your older brother goes off to preach and says, I'm the son of God? As we might expect, James, it, James found it rather hard to believe that. The Bible tells us that there even was a point where James thought his brother Jesus was out of his mind. And yet, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, James becomes a man of faith. And for him, faith in Jesus never means belief one. It always means belief two, acting on what you believe. And James here in his letter to Christians addresses this issue because a number of Christians have adopted the view that belief one is enough. In other words, it would be as if I were to say, hey, I believe that Jesus came to earth, that he lived this incredible life and that he was crucified on a cross and he was buried and he was raised from the dead and I even believe that he died on the cross as a penalty for my sins and all I need to do is accept that mentally and say that. In other words, if I embrace the right set of facts, it makes me a believer. And James wants to correct that thinking because faith is more than just a matter of the heart. It's more than just a matter of the mind. Faith is an act of the will and it affects our behavior. Faith is belief two because belief one doesn't change anything. And to support his point, James describes someone who offers no practical help to a needy person. And as I consider this example that James offers here, I find it rather interesting because he could have given many other examples to illustrate his point. He could have said, for example, you know, if you believe in prayer but never pray, then you don't really believe. He could have said, you believe in the value of Christian community, but you hardly ever go to church, so you don't really believe. But instead of talking about those kinds of things, he talks about caring for someone in need. Why? Because there are hundreds of Bible verses that encourage believers to care for others both inside and outside the community of faith. God consistently urges us to share what we have with others. And by picking this example, James makes it clear that Christians don't care for the poor because it's good to do and nice to do. We do it because it's what God wants. And if we deliberately choose not to do it, then we don't understand the heart of God. And if we think we can simply wish people well and do nothing then we've fallen into the trap of belief one. And belief one never will make a difference in our lives or the lives of other people. James calls this faith without action, and he says it's dead. That's a pointed word. It's dead. It's not 
faith at all. It tells us that this is serious business. And so as I read this, I am grateful, deeply grateful, to be part of a church that does take this seriously. When it comes to this expression of faith, we generally get it right. And that's why we participate in Project Hope that Rob talked about a few minutes ago. It's why we give away baskets of food at Thanksgiving time so people won't go hungry. It's why part of our weekly offering goes into a benevolence fund so we can distribute money to people who are living on the edge. We do all this and far more because as a church we're striving to be belief to people. Otherwise, our claim to be men and women of faith would ring hollow. That's what James is saying here. And yet, what he's saying isn't always obvious to many believers. Let's admit it. People are stubborn. People get set in their ways. We don't always change easily. And so even as he writes these words, James knows that some of his readers will continue to think that belief one is enough. And so as he continues, he tackles that issue head on. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? That comment, you have faith, I have deeds, to me has kind of a contemporary ring to it. I've often heard people say it this way in our day. Oh, you have a faith that works for you and I have a faith that works for me. And yet, as James makes clear, a belief one approach to faith actually doesn't work. (laughs) After all, even demons believe in God. And we find several examples of this in the biographies of Jesus that are in the Bible. From time to time, Jesus will encounter a person who is afflicted with an evil spirit. And those spirits typically speak up and they name Jesus as the Son of God. They claim that he is the Holy One sent by God. So they accept the truth about Jesus. They believe in Jesus, yet they have no faith in Jesus. James is telling us that evil spirits are stuck in belief one, a mental acceptance of a fact that has no bearing on how they live and what they do. And in the same way, I know many people who believe in God and yet that belief doesn't shape their actions, which means there's no evidence of faith in their lives. They're just like the students at Herb Gooley's fictional flight school who passionately believe that human beings can fly, yet they walk everywhere they go. James wants us to understand that belief one is functionally useless. And so now he's going to describe why belief two is an expression of real faith. Unlike belief one, 
belief too actually is life changing. As we continue on, verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You You see, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So now to reinforce his point, James offers us an example. He highlights the faith of this man named Abraham. He was a wealthy nomad who lived in the ancient Middle East and he was considered the father of the Jewish faith. Abraham's story is unusual in many ways. But the particular reference here is to a promise that God made. God told Abraham and his wife Sarah that they would have a son after they both were well beyond the childbearing years. And that promise miraculously came true. Sarah gave birth to a son named Isaac. They were overjoyed. And yet, about 30 years later, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. Now, why would God give Abraham a son and then demand that son as a sacrifice? It made absolutely no sense. Yet Abraham chose to do what God wanted. He put his son on an altar. He raised a knife to prepare to kill him. And then at the very last moment, God stopped Abraham and substituted an animal sacrifice in place of Isaac. Now, from our perspective, that whole thing just seems so odd. Why would God do that? It's because in that ancient culture, Life is viewed cheaply. Many of the indigenous religions promote human sacrifice as a way to appease the gods. So the God of Abraham is making a profound point. Human life has great value. And our God does not require the sacrifice of human beings. Because human beings, all human beings, are made in the image of God. There's a profound lesson here for Abraham and for the world, and yet for it to have real impact and meaning, it can't be just theoretical. It can't simply be something that Abraham agrees with intellectually. He needs to live it. He needs to go through the process of wrestling with the difficulty of doing something God asks that makes no sense at all initially. He has to live this so he can personally experience what it's like for God to intervene in his life and stop the act of human sacrifice. By living it, Abraham gets to prove to himself that he does not have a useless belief one faith. He has a belief to faith. A faith where what he acknowledges intellectually is put into practice. And it makes all the difference in his connection with God. 
he becomes God's friend. Abraham is a wonderful example of faith. But he's not an isolated example. The Bible is filled with stories of other people like his, and James wants to highlight more, and he picks now the example of a faithful life lived by another person. It's a woman named Rahab, and he talks about her next in verse 25. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I love the contrast in these examples. Abraham is affluent. Rahab is poor. She's an innkeeper and a prostitute. James selects individuals at both ends of the economic and social spectrum to highlight the fact that status has nothing to do with spirituality. He selects both a man and a woman to make his point to show that gender has nothing to do with spirituality. No one is beyond the reach of God and every person can choose to embrace real faith, what I call belief too, where what we know in our mind we choose to act upon. And so what's Rahab's story? She's a citizen of the ancient city of Jericho and the Israelites are coming to attack. And she's heard about the Israelites, and she's heard about their God. And what she's heard tells her that this God must be the God of heaven and earth. Because he's completely unlike the pagan gods that are worshipped within her culture. So when the Jewish spies come to town to scope things out, Rahab commits an act of treason. She befriends the enemy. She hides these spies. She gives them some news, and then she helps them safely get out of the city. Here's something that's really important to understand. Rahab isn't the only one in Jericho who's heard about God. Rahab tells the spies that everyone's heard about God. And they're all quaking in fear. You see, they don't discount what they've been told about the God of Israel. They don't scoff, they don't mock, they don't say, oh, that God, that's some made-believe God, our gods are stronger. They don't do any of that. They actually believe what they're hearing about God and it causes them to respond with some holy fear. But it doesn't translate into faith. They're belief one people. They mentally accept something is true about God and it doesn't lead to substantial change in their behavior. And in the entire city of Jericho, Rahab is the only person who moves from belief one to belief two. She comes to some conclusions about God, she embraces those conclusions, and she acts upon them with her life. And in order to do that, she has to take some radical steps. She has to go against the religious beliefs and the customs of her own culture. She has to betray her own fellow citizens. And you can't do that if your faith in God is merely a set of mental beliefs. When you're faced with difficult decisions, you can't do what's necessary if you're a belief one person. Rahab is a belief two person. So she takes 
a life-changing step of faith. And as we see her story continue to unfold in Scripture, we find that she becomes a follower of God. James summarizes all of this with a succinct statement. Faith without deeds is dead. Belief one simply doesn't cut it. Belief two is what really matters. And unfortunately, some people get stuck in a belief one lifestyle. Here's how I've sometimes seen this play out. Someone is living as an unbeliever, and they come to a point where they become convinced that they are separated from God. They're separated from God because of their sinfulness. They realize they can be forgiven if they place their faith in Jesus. And at that point, that's you or that's me, we have to make a critical decision. What do we do? Well, you can't just change the way you think. You have to take some action to show God that you're serious. And so you repent and you're baptized. Do you realize that when you do that, that's an initial expression of belief to faith? You're doing something with what you think and what you know. But here's what tragically happens in the life of many Christians. After that first step of faith, you stop focusing on action and you focus instead on gaining knowledge. And instead of a lifestyle of faith, Christianity becomes an ongoing exercise in learning the right answers. And when we do that, we become a belief one Christian. Yet if we want to be people of faith, then it's not enough to know the truth. We must resolve to live out the truth that we know because belief one faith is useless when we're faced with difficult choices. There's a comedian named Ken Davis, and he tells a story that I absolutely love, and it drives this point home in a vivid way. He writes, Back in college, I was asked to give a talk to my speech class, and my title was The Law of the Pendulum and Belief. The law of the pendulum is this. A pendulum never can return to a point higher than the point from which it's released. Because of friction and gravity... When the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until it finally is at rest. So Ken, giving his speech, explained all this, and then he gave a demonstration. He had a, a child's toy top, and he took a three-foot three length of string, and he attached it to that top, and then he hung it in front of the blackboard in that classroom and pulled it back at an angle, and he let it go back and forth. Back and forth. Here's the pendulum. At each high point of the swing, with a piece of chalk, he made a mark. Back and forth. Another mark. Back and forth. Another mark. It's not long until that top is at rest. And everyone can see, based on the marks he's made on the chalkboard, that his proposition was true. Every time the pendulum swung, it made less and less of an arc. The arc never increased, it only decreased. So Ken then asked, how many of you believe that the law of the pendulum is true? And every student and the professor raised their hands. We believe. 
Now, using my terminology, they had accepted the facts that Ken presented as true, which means they'd embraced belief one. But Ken wasn't done yet. In the middle of that room, he had hung a homemade pendulum. 250 pounds of metal hanging from the ceiling. At the side of the classroom, he pushed over a table, he had put a chair on top of that table, and he invited the instructor to climb up on that table and to sit in that chair with his head against the cement wall of the classroom. And then he grabbed the pendulum and he lifted it up. And he brought that pendulum to its highest point of arc and it was right against the professor's nose. He said, let me remind you of the law of the pendulum. When I let go of this, it will swing across the room, it will come back, and it will do so in less of an arc than it did, which means your face will not be in any danger. Sir, do you still believe in the law of the pendulum? Ken says the professor was sweating. And then he weakly nodded and said, yes. Ken says, I released the pendulum. It made a swishing sound as it arced across the room and at the far end of the swing it paused momentarily and then it started rushing back and I never saw a man move so fast in my life. <laughs> he literally dove off the table. Ken says, I turn and ask the class. Does our professor believe in the law of the pendulum? And they shouted, no! I love that story because it helps us see that belief one really isn't belief. Belief one never will stand up when it's put to the test. But we need to admit that we like belief one because it's easy. All we have to do is think something or say something. It's belief, too, that's hard. And I have to admit, if it would have been me sitting in that chair with my head against a cement wall, I would have found it very hard to stay put as 250 pounds of metal came rushing toward my face. And yet belief, too, would, would have enabled me to ignore what my eyes were telling me. Belief, too, would have enabled me to ignore what my emotions were telling me. Belief, too, would have kept me in my seat. Belief, too, is what matters. Because that's when we act on what we claim to believe. And in the spiritual realm of life, belief, too, is life-changing because <clears throat> that's where we take what we think and what we affirm and what we know about God. That's where it actually becomes faith. Because of his belief to faith. Abraham was able to trust God despite the fact that God's instructions to him initially made zero sense. Because of her belief to faith, Rahab was able to turn her back on her own culture and on everything she'd been taught spiritually and become a follower of God. That's what belief to look like in their lives. So what might belief to look like in your life and in mine? Here's a few examples to prod your thinking. Belief one 
tells us that it's vital to reach out to people who are far from God. Belief, too, compels us to do something about that. Belief, too, compels us to get to know our neighbors so that we can be the means by which they might experience the love of God. Belief, one, tells us that iron sharpens iron so that we can help each other develop a more mature and deeper faith. Belief, too, may may compel us to spend less time arguing with other people online and instead build real relationships, meaningful relationships where we actually can learn from each other. Belief, one, tells us that we don't find lasting meaning in money and possessions. Belief, too, may compel us to live differently, to be more willing to open our hands and give what we have to share with others. Belief to even may compel us to let God redirect our career choices so that we focus less on success and more on significance. Those are just a few thoughts. Obviously, in saying all this, I'm speaking to people who've made a decision to be a Christian. But what if you're not yet a believer? Well, if you've never taken an initial step of faith to get connected to God, then we'd like you to consider becoming a follower of Jesus, as we're striving to do. We want to invite you to join us in this very exciting, exhilarating, challenging adventure called the life of faith. The belief to life that actually makes a difference. If you'd like to know more, if you'd like to enter into a conversation, feel free to speak with me after the service. Feel free to wander over to the prayer corner and speak with one of our elders. Or jot a note on the connection card. Let us know what your questions are. We'd love to sit down with you and talk and see how we can help answer those questions so that you can come to the conclusion that we've come to, that the life of faith is a life worth living, particularly if it's a belief to lifestyle. What is it that God wants? God wants believers. He wants people who will trust him in all circumstances. He wants a community of faith that chooses to live as belief to people. And I believe God wants to leave each of us with this question. What is the Holy Spirit prompting you? What is the Holy Spirit prompting me to do? To put our faith into action even today.